This is AgriPulse Open Mic. I'm your host, Jeff Daly. Our guest this week is the ranking member of the House Agriculture Committee, Congressman Mike Conaway. AgriPulse Open Mic is brought to you by NCIS, the National Crop Insurance Services. America's crop insurance industry provides individualized protection on over 300 million acres of farmland. Crop insurance remains the smartest, most efficient way to secure America's food, fiber, and fuel supply. AgriPulse Open Mic continues with Texas 11th District Representative Mike Conaway next. Today's Open Mic segment is brought to you by America's crop insurance industry, which is thankful for the continued support of farmers, commodity organizations, rural businesses, lenders, and lawmakers who are fighting to maintain a strong farm safety net. Providing individualized protection on more than 300 million acres of farmland, crop insurance remains the smartest, most efficient way to secure America's food, fiber, and fuel supply. This is AgriPulse Open Mic. House Ag Ranking Member Mike Conaway says consistency is the one thing farmers and ranchers in his district and across the country have asked for from Washington. Conaway led the charge to approve the 2018 Farm Bill to help farmers know what risk management tools they could expect to help weather difficult financial conditions. He says agriculture is in a tough spot nationwide. I represent an awful lot of cotton farmers, and 58-cent cotton is not something they can do a real good job of feeding their families on. So they're, they're looking, you know, the, the MFP payments uh, will be very helpful in, uh, in trying to get them through to the next season, all those kind of good things going on. But just you know, they need higher prices in, uh, in the market. They would certainly prefer that to the other things that are, that are going on. Uh, I don't know that there's a lot of difference broadly. Uh, you know, dairies are getting a little bit better off. Milk uh, prices are coming up a little bit, but and the new dairy program is coming in. But, but uh, you know, no one's cutting a fat hog, as they say, and uh, and they're uh, still you know on on uh, pins and needles. I mean, they've had six years of, of bleeding uh, equity, bleeding you know, adding to debt, and uh, and it's just uh, really hard times right now in production agriculture. And those are. Uh, across the country, not limited to uh, to District 11. As you worked with other legislators in crafting the 18 Farm Bill, not any way in the world that you could have predicted what the weather, what trade, and what crop surpluses would do to the farm economy, and, and certainly in hitting at the same time. So the question is, is the Farm Bill that you were able to put together with crop insurance, is it adequate now to help producers weather this storm? It certainly could be better in lots of areas if we'd had more money. We just simply didn't have more money, as uh, as you know. The program was never set to be able to protect producers from the kind of turmoil that's been going on with respect to the trade fights that we're having and the renegotiation of NAFTA and the impact that's had on on uh, you know markets and everything else. So I don't know that anybody realistically thought that the farm bill that we did in 18 would have been able to, in and of itself, be able to protect, protect producers from the illegal retaliatory uh, steps taken by China uh, against our producers. Because uh, Xi Jinping believes that, that uh, Trump's main supporters are rural America and, and rural producers, and he's right, they are, and that uh, he thought that there was Achilles' heel for the president, that he could go after them and hurt them, that they would somehow turn on the president. They have not turned on the president, but they certainly appreciate the president's uh, you know, helps with uh, the two rounds of MFP funding that's, uh, that's gone on so far. So, you know, uh, the Farm Bill really isn't set to, to, 
to try to you know, take care of that, and that's why the MFP payments are so important. Should Congress have had a hand, or should Congress have a hand, in future MFP payments that come through the department and, and through CCC? Um, yeah, I don't know, Jeff. Uh, certainly, the administration is a whole lot more nimble than uh, Congress is in that regard. Just look at the current circumstances. You've got urban Democrats who couldn't give or couldn't care about real America taking a program hostage for some reason that they think that gives them advantage with President Trump. You look at how hard it is to get a farm bill done. You're going to try to do that in response to something as as fast changing and as uh, amorphous as these trade fight and the impact it's having. You know, the president's promised to have, to have the payments to go out, but they're going to reevaluate whether or not that's needed in November and then in January. And if the if the market circumstances are different and it doesn't need to go out. Uh, producers will know that. Well, there's no way Congress could be that nimble to try to figure it out and, and actually to get the, the help to producers that it needs or uh, not spend money that does need to get spent. So Congress is responsible for the you know, power of the purse comes out of the House. I've got that. But uh, you know, in this instance, I don't see Congress being able to, to be reactive enough or quick enough to provide the kind of help that MFP has is, is, uh, is provided. Well, standing in that same uh, line, it took Congress two years to craft a $3 billion disaster bill that covered hurricanes and wildfires and, and even flooding in the Midwest. Uh, some would say the communities are, are not whole even after those. Is there a vein, a need, or an opportunity for a second round of disaster assistance for the country that was hurt so bad? Well, I, you know, but obviously we've got money uh, in 19 still to be spent if, if new disasters come up. That'll limit, obviously, what uh, can be done for the disasters that are already included in the 18, uh, 19, uh, $3 billion package that you're, uh, that you're talking about. There is a, a, a line of logic that says, you know, Congress should put aside money every year for uh, you know rainy day fund that would be able to be tapped in and not have to, to depend on uh, you know where you are in, in any, one spit, any one spot in time. But given the deficit spending that we've going on, it's really hard to borrow money to put into a rainy day fund. So I've, I've got all those mechanics. But, you know, each Congress has to respond to the circumstances they find uh, the country in. Sometimes you go a long time without having any kind of ad hoc necessary, whether it's ad hoc uh, producer uh, ag uh, disaster packages or just the overall ad hoc disaster package that, that uh, goes to help uh, help communities recover from, uh, you know, from monster hurricanes and, and other kinds of things. Rewinding to January of this year, there was hope that there might be an infrastructure bill and even now, I revert to a conversation with Congressman Cleaver of Missouri just a few days ago where he said they still have levees that are not repaired and they are vulnerable if there is additional flooding or when additional flooding comes. So that lends the idea to look to Washington to see us, are we done or is there still some help that can come to those areas? John Cornyn said that um, uh, he's our senator from Texas told a small group of Texans last week that the Senate is moving one forward. They've, I think they've got it out of the out of the uh, requisite committee on what would be done. It's now over in Senate Finance as to how to pay for it. That came out on a, on a strong bipartisan deal out of the, uh, the Senate committees. And so I think there's still, uh, certainly the need is there. Uh, unfortunately, in the previous uh, last several months, every time Speaker Pelosi hears the word infrastructure, she wants to insult the president and, and derail uh, any effort of getting an infrastructure bill done. So, uh, you know, stay tuned. If, uh, if the House, you know, led by the Democrats, want to, to uh, work on an infrastructure package, uh, we're all in. But uh, the last couple of times that has come up, and she's, she and Chuck Schumer have gone to the White House, or were supposed to go to the White House, to talk about a big infrastructure number, a couple of trillion dollars, I think, is the last number I heard them talking about. This, uh, Pelosi would then tweet something about the president hours before the meeting and insult the president so that knowing that he would uh, you know, cancel meetings. So 
um, really, you know, this is one of those areas where I think politics um, is is just all over it, and uh, and I I don't have a good sense of what's going on in Speaker Pelosi's office. It's not hard to find critics of farm programs in Washington, and I know that we made a move to policy back in the mid '90s that shifted to a more market-based approach. Farmers wanted to produce for a market, wanted income from the marketplace and not from the mailbox. But as late, with the income situation as it is, with the weather, with the trade that's happened, we've wound up with a lot more ad hoc, a lot more money coming through the mailbox. Is is this a challenge to the conservative model of policy, and, and can we get back, or what does it take to get back to that ideal? You, know, you can't answer that without saying, what's the driver, particularly on the ad hoc side on this MFP program, and that's China and, uh, and their uh, their view of what the world should look like. Most producers, I think, understand that the trade fight the president's having right now with China is a proxy for the broader narrative of how should how should China act and how should they treat the rest of the world and how should we let them treat us uh, in in, uh, in this regard and and uh, there's a lot less opportunity for this. Uh, uh, trade fight to go kinetic than if we try to challenge what they're doing in the South China Sea or some of the other areas where they're, uh, they're flat out ignoring the rule of law. This is a big deal. Xi Jinping has a 50-year vision of, of the world in which the world revolves around China. They reset the narrative coming out of World War II that that, that uh, rule of law that uh, was established there is no longer appropriate because China was left out and China should be the end all of everything. So the world, including the United States, would orbit around China. Uh, in his uh, in his vision, that's not good for us, and it's not good for the rest of the world. So, having this argument uh, is you know once in a lifetime kind of thing, where we've got a president who's finally willing to to stand up to the, the bully that Xi Jinping is, and and have this fight. Now, the producers also know that they've got to go to the bank next week. Uh, it's a part of the while this is going on, so we're trying to make sure that it gets done quickly. But I don't know that you can set a narrative of, of something this big and, uh, and consequential uh, as to, that would be repeated. Uh, moving forward, so it's hard to argue that that, uh, that you need this. That, that argue either way because of the the, the nature of which this uncertainty has arisen. Um, you know, president, we had a president come in who was already going to be disruptive on trade because he didn't like bi- uh, uh, multilateral deals. He wanted bilateral deals, and so TPP and and he wanted to reset NAFTA. We just about have that one redone. If uh, Speaker Pelosi will put the uh, we'll give him the head nod so we can put the bill on the floor and get those uncertainties. But the big the single biggest geopolitical issue going on right now is how will China act uh, on the world stage, and, and right now they're not good actors. And so uh, that, that I think, to me, that overshadows this conversation about you know ad hoc visit, uh, relief for producers and those kinds of things because they've just gotten caught up uh, in this trade fight because Xi Jinping believed that that was a, a weakness for the president that he would uh, that, they, that that China could hurt producers in America and that would somehow help them in this uh, in this conversation with uh, resetting uh, China's uh, role in the world. That's not being told in the headlines that this fight is really bigger than agriculture or intellectual property. It's about philosophies of which governments and and what mindset rules ultimately the globe. No, you're exactly right. I mean, Ping, Xi Jinping has the idea that China should be setting the rules, should be setting the standards, that uh, you look at the way they treat folks in their country, uh, that's how he, he uh, believes the world should go. Uh, it, it doesn't get a lot of press, and I'm not sure why, but he's got over a million Muslim Uyghurs in concentration camp conditions in western China, the single largest humanitarian wreck on the earth today, and not one peep because people are afraid of Xi Jinping and the trade of the Communist Party, and we shouldn't. We shouldn't be. We've got a you know, we've got a president that's now leading on standing up to him to try to uh, to try to reset that uh, that narrative. So uh, I would uh, to ask your listeners to 
to watch what happens in Hong Kong. Uh, the Communist Party, which is pretty narrowly led by Xi Jinping and several, very few of his uh, direct reports, is terrified of that unrest in uh, Hong Kong bleeding into uh, mainland China and, uh, and becoming a, a problem there. He can't, uh, his system can't absorb that kind of unrest the way that we do here in America, and, uh, and it's a big deal. So for me, the kind of canary in the coal mine is the way they react and respond to uh, what's going on in, in Hong Kong. But you're exactly right. This is a bigger narrative than, uh, than just the trade fight that's, uh, that's going on. If I watch headlines and if I listen to conversations, uh, more and more conversation about climate change, more conversation about sustainability. Inside the room, when you were crafting the policy of the 18 Farm Bill, could you see or was there an effort to try to move sustainability or sustainable practices into the policy? I don't know that we did it for the sake of that. We did it because it it makes sense. Um, If you look at this Farm Bill, most would argue it's the greenest uh, Farm Bill ever. Uh, we've made some terrific uh, moves on the conservation side, you know, resetting uh, both a bunch of the spending to go toward the equip program, which really does address specific uh, issues on uh, on water, land, and other kinds of things. And it's a you know that that uh, uh, share program between producers and the, and the federal taxpayer. Uh, so on balance, it is the greenest program. Um, I, I I'm not. I don't get real excited about uh, doing things for thumping, you know, chest thumping reasons to, to just make you feel good. I like doing things that actually have an impact. Uh, there are no better conservationists on the face of the earth than farmers and ranchers. Uh, they protect the land. They understand it's a, a legacy they want to hand off to their future future prodigy uh, in better shape than they've currently got it. They've also got to make money while doing it. And so you've got to. So uh, unlike uh, you know other countries like Russia and China, where um, uh, your practices there are, are just simply for the dollar. Uh, here in the United States, we don't do that. We have that longer-term view. Yeah, we've got to make money now, but we also have to protect the land. We want to drink clean water. We want to breathe clean, clean air. Uh, but we need to do the things that make sense uh, and can be folded into a uh, profit-making model that, that helps us. Here's an example. Uh, there's a major oil company that believes they can use CO2 to uh, enhance the production of oil and and, uh, and shale oil and the shale oil plays are going on in Texas. There's not enough CO2 commercially to be able to meet their needs. They're doing two things that help. One, they're setting up ambient collection systems where they suck CO2 out of the air to be used in this process, put it back in the ground and sequester it forever. They also believe that they can contract with ethanol plants to pay the ethanol people for the CO2 that they would pay them enough that they could put the collection gear on each of those refineries to collect that CO2 and use that as, uh, in, in their processes and, in effect, sell a byproduct of ethanol production. That's a win for everybody. I don't know if CO2 is the boogaboo that everybody thinks it is, but if we can pull it out of the air immediately or we can capture it that's not being, uh, as it's being produced and put it back in the ground forever, I think the, the environmentalists and everyone should champion that. Uh, by the way, it would also uh, tie you know, big oil uh, and, and, uh, and ethanol together in a way that, that would create a bit of a symbiotic relationship that, uh, that would be good for everybody. So those are the kinds of of wins that uh, that we ought to be talking about. We also could have gone further in the farm bill in, in terms of our forestry practices because there's no better carbon sink than forests. And we've not managed our forests well. We had some really good forest management things in there that the Senate simply would not take at all. So there's some things that we can do that make sense for the environment, make sense for for Americans living their quiet lives so that they can continue to prosper, that uh, that meet those goals or meet the sustainability and, and the things that uh, that everybody wants. It's just a matter of how do we get there. No one would argue that we ought to be breathing dirty air. No one would argue that we ought to be drinking dirty water. Uh, 
but it's the how do you get there that makes the, the, this the real issue. And for me, it's about not chest thumping uh, or bragging or doing things that make people feel good, but doing things that actually have an impact on uh, on, make, on, on making our uh, environment better. I understand you met recently with Ambassador Lighthizer. I wonder if you could share the narrative or some of the points that might have come along in that conversation. So. One of the hardest working men in show business. Uh, he has just been uh, 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 unendingly, untireable in, in his efforts to try to get this deal done uh, on USMCA. And it's, uh, it's really worked well to make that happen. He's worked with individual Democrats, groups of Democrats. He's gone back over and over and over to talk to Democrats. The guy's just incredible. Uh, and what he's, uh, how hard he's been working at getting this done. He understands it's, uh, you know, a step forward, three steps back, four steps forward, two steps back, just over and over, plowing the same ground over and over, but he's really good at it and uh, is working with Speaker Pelosi and her team to try to gain that critical mass of Democrats that are necessary to allow her uh, to bring this deal to the floor. Because it's all about that group of, uh, of Democrats out there who are in rural districts who desperately need to be able to vote for USMCA and get it passed because of the good impact it will have on uh, on producers. They're telling her to, to put this on the floor. None of us know what that critical mass is in terms of numbers, but, uh, but uh, uh, Trade Rep uh, Lighthouser is just doing a terrific job of trying to manage that, trying to help her, trying to answer questions. Uh, trying to get her to where she can say yes to uh, putting this thing on the floor, and it's done really well. He's encouraged by kind of the progress that's been made, uh, the answers to some of the questions that the Dems have had on the labor issues. He's been able to answer those. He sent her a letter last week uh, answering some of the final questions that they might have, and so uh, I've not talked with him this week to know uh, kind of what the Democrat response is to, uh, to his response to their uh, questions, but uh, he's uh, he's moving the ball, and uh uh, you know, it's. Uh, I wish it were three yards in a cloud of dust. It's like a yard and a half in a cloud of dust. Uh, you know, using a football analogy, but uh, he is. Uh, he's working it hard, and and I don't know anybody that that have stayed at it as well as he has. Uh, uh, you know, with the, over and over and over the way he's done it to uh, try to get the Democrats to a yes. As your state borders Mexico, as you read through the USMCA, could you give any validity to the speaker and others' concerns about labor and environment? This trade deal will be the prototype, the gold standard for uh, labor uh, issues within a within a treaty. Uh, it'll set a new floor for new negotiations. It will raise wages in Mexico. It will um, uh, protect collective bargaining uh, much much better than they ever have. Henry Cuellar and and, uh, and uh, Kevin Brady were in, in Mexico in uh, August and said that the Mexican uh, government is is budgeting new money for enforcement. Uh, of the issues, and so it uh, is a good deal. And I don't, you know, the Lighthouser believes it's the it's the best labor deal ever, and uh, it will you know stand us in good stead as we look at new treaties going forward. This will be the one that they'll pull the labor standards from to to start with. So, I think the normal uh, reactions that you get out of the Democrats is. Uh, uh, is not there. You still have some folks using that as an excuse, but I don't believe they've got the uh, leg to stand on if they uh, begin to look at what's happening. And, and if they don't want to get to a no, if they want to be no, they're going to find a reason to be no. But uh, uh, anybody who's in a, in a district that exports, uh, whether it's ag products or anything else, uh, should be in favor of getting this USMCA done because it does reset the, uh, the relationships between Mexico and Canada into the 21st century. It's good for all three countries. It's especially good for the United States, and we, we need to get this thing done. From your perspective, when is the next opportunity to address the immigration issue in the country? Now is the best time to do it. The realistically, um, until I see some movement out of the Democrats that they actually want to address this issue and fix it, 
Uh, this seems to be one of those problems that Steve, Speaker Pelosi to really likes to admire and, and not fix. Uh, they're really good at admiring this program and problem and, and fighting it. But you've got to ask the question, are we operating in America's best interest? We should always operate in America's best interest. We don't need to be mean and harsh and angry. We just have to be firm. This policy is in our best interest. We'll do it. This policy is not. We won't do it. The question, the two rhetorical questions, is it in America's best interest to know what is coming and going in out of our country every day? Yes. Is it in our best interest to know who is coming and going in our country every day? The answer is yes. Well, we're not doing that today. And that's a, a screaming need to get done. And so why would you not begin the hard process of getting uh, to those solutions that allows us to answer both of those questions, yes, the right number of resources, the right number of people, and yes, the right infrastructure that our border, our border protection folks are telling us what they need, why would you not be you know, working to get those resources necessary to be able to answer those two questions, yes. So time is of the essence. Uh, once we get the operation control of the border, then that begins to make the entry enforcement and all the other issues associated with immigration just modestly less difficult to uh, to, to come to grips with. Congressman Conway, uh, we want to thank you for an outstanding career and tremendous service to the industry of agriculture, and today for taking time to speak with us here on this edition of Open Mic. Sir, it is Open Mic, and you have the final word. Well, Jeff, thank you, buddy. Um, it's, uh, uh, it's been a labor of love, and... Uh, the uh, highlight of my professional life is to be able to uh, do what I've been able to do. Uh, the folks I've been associated with, my team that I've had in place uh, throughout this, uh, my chairmanship, and then in this last uh, uh, year or so, has just been exemplary people, the absolute best, and uh, uh, been a happy ride, and uh, I've, I've thoroughly enjoyed it. I do have 15 months left on my term, and I'm going to finish uh, uh, the same way I've been doing it, get the other uh, the 14 plus years. I still love the job. That's not why I'm uh, I'm at it home. Uh, and, but uh, but thank you for your confidence. Appreciate it. Our thanks to House Ag Ranking Member Mike Conaway, our guest this week on Open Mic. AgriPulse Open Mic is brought to you by NCIS, the National Crop Insurance Services. Crop insurance, the smartest, most efficient way to secure America's food, fiber, and fuel supply. For AgriPulse, I'm Jeff Daly.